Behold! The sword of power. Excalibur. Welcome to the Oh Gosh, Oh Golly, Oh Wow podcast, the podcast where we talk about the Marvel Comics series Excalibur and nothing but Excalibur every week for 126 plus weeks. This week in episode 19, we're still in the thick of the cross-time caper, speeding full tilt into the manga-inspired Excalibur number 18, Wild Wild Wheels, originally published in January 1990. The creative team is Chris Claremont on writing, Dennis Jensen on pencils, Dan Adkins on inks, Mike Rockowitz and Bran Venkata on colors, Jade Madej on letters, and Terry Kavanaugh on editing. It's time for service. It's time for selection. It's time for savings. You want all that and more? Then get to Excalibur Auto Group this weekend. Get some of the biggest discounts. Check out the massive selection. Excalibur has the vehicle you're looking for. When it comes to big savings, massive selection, and incredible customer satisfaction, Excalibur Auto Group delivers it all and more. Excalibur Auto Group, putting dreams in driveways every day. We have an absolutely perfect guest to steer us through this issue's parody or appropriation of manga styles, who I will introduce in a moment, but first, your regular drivers. I am Dr. Anna Papard. I write and talk about lots of things in lots of places, both academic and less so, including another podcast called Three Panel Contrast, and on a cadre of courageous comic book websites like Shelf Dust and the Middle Spaces and Comics XF. Regardless of whatever else I get up to, I always prioritize my most important job, the one no one asked me to do, but I keep doing anyway as Kurt Wagner's unofficial PR manager. I am joined as always by Mav. Take it away. Hello, my name is Captain Terror of the Car Acrobatic Team. Tomorrow, the great cross-time race begins, a race that we must not lose. To win, we'll stop at nothing. It was exactly one year ago today that Speed Racer and his Mach 5 defeated us. We swore that someday we would get our revenge. That time is almost at hand. Um, no, wait. Actually, I'm Christopher Maverick. You can call me Mav. Wow. <laughs> uh, I, it's like my favorite part of the show. You know? That? <laughs> oh, wow. Um, and, re- and really, you know, I, I, I'm a pop culture academic. You guys have heard the show before. I study comics and... <laughs> TV and movies and stuff. But I mean, this was my one time, perhaps in the entire run of this show, to just give love to the great Snake Oiler. You know, and Snake Oiler, I just I just want to fondly remember Snake Oiler, who's vaguely alluded to in this book. And yeah, that's that's it. <laughs> but also, I'm the host of like Vox Popcast, another podcast that's online. Go listen to it, you know, and listen to this one, whatever. But, you know, big ups to Snake Oiler. <laughs> 
as will quickly become clear from our discussion, I know almost nothing about manga and anime. So I'm just going to be here listening and learning and asking questions. And that's going to be my role today. Um, but anyway, Andrew, if you want to say a few words about yourself. Sure. I'm Dr. Andrew DeMann. Uh, I'm a lecturer at St. Jerome's University and the project lead for the Claremont Run, which is a big social media engaged Chris Claremont project. Um, I also recently got the University of Waterloo to approve a manga course. So I'm really, really excited about today's guest and today's topic. And I'm actively repressing the urge to just randomly shout things like Fruits Basket or Sailor Moon, which is the most influential shoujo. Um, but I will not do that because I'm going to be cool. <laughs> Okay, well, we are joined, as I mentioned, by an extra special, super smart guest who we're so lucky to have with us and Dr. Mimi Okabe. Welcome, Mimi. Hello, everyone. Uh, thank you for having me today. Yeah. <laughs> we are so thrilled to have you. I'll say a few words about you. So Mimi holds a PhD in comparative literature from the University of Alberta, where she teaches courses such as Japanese language, translation, pop culture, and world literature. She is a huge fan of Sherlock Holmes and Japanese adaptations of Sherlock Holmes, which she describes as a really niche area of study in Japanese studies. And her research advances new insights as it examines the archetype of the boy detective in manga and she explores this in relation to broader societal expectations of youth in comp contemporary Japan. That sounds awesome. Um, <laughs> she also <laughs> informs us that she is not familiar with Excalibur, but super excited to talk with us about today. And we are super excited to talk with you today. So let's start with that. So you are completely unfamiliar with Excalibur, correct? Yes, I don't know anything. Well, I know some things now, but prior to having read uh, issue number 18, I didn't know anything about it. And that is totally fine. Um, do you have any kind of broader sort of familiarity with superhero comics at all? Like, did you know any of these characters coming into this comic? I think Nightcrawler, because he was in one of the Marvel films that I watched. Um, and I think everyone else. Oh, and Phoenix? Yeah, yeah. So it's confusing <laughs> because we have Rachel Gray in this comic, who's like the daughter of Jean Gray, who would be like the character oh, from like the okay. movies. But you don't have to know that. It's super confusing. And, <laughs> and we won't even get into it. No, it doesn't. No. It doesn't, doesn't matter at all. <laughs> yeah, so don't worry about that. But she is called Phoenix, and she does have the Phoenix Force, which is a nebulous thing that we probably also won't really talk about. Or maybe we will, actually, but we'll see. I want to come back to some first impressions, uh, maybe, because I really want to talk about sort of the manga influence and bring your research kind of directly to bear on, on this Mimi. But maybe we'll just do our plot summary, and then we'll kind of come back to that and learn a little bit more about why you're a perfect guest to help us understand some of the stylistic experimentation going on here. So we know many of you our lovely listeners have been reading along with the pod, but as we've once again got a whole lot of plot to sort through, we'll start with trying to make sense of it for you in a little plot summary. So Excalibur 18 opens with Rachel, or is it Megan, waking up from a violent nightmare. As it turns out, it is Megan who's transformed into Rachel through some sort of undisclosed psychic bond. When Megan demands answers of Rachel, Rachel lashes out, which makes Excalibur's train go haywire into the void between worlds. They crash land in a desert, with Megan being flung out of the train right into the car of champion race car driver Jamie Braddock. Ryan heads after her while the rest of the Excalibur crew attempt to regain their balance. Rachel, back to her regular appearance but not her right mind, staggers in a daze out into the world where she's nearly hit by another speeding car. Kurt teleports to save her but doesn't have the juice for a second port, so Lockheed steps in to save them both. Back inside the train, the crew examines the catatonic Rachel and Kitty locates Megan and Jamie on television in a worldwide Grand Prix, which is a big media event in this world since apparently the world they've landed on is deeply devoted to car racing. Not sure what else to 
to do, Kitty takes a walk outside and finds an old car buried in an embankment. Widget remakes it for her, but won't let anyone but Kitty drive. Kurt reluctantly allows Kitty to take off in the car in search of Megan and Brian. Kitty quickly finds Brian, walking because Jamie temporarily stole his powers. Kitty and Brian are then pulled over for multiple race violations by a pair of very female police officers who call themselves the Dirty Angels. Smitten with Brian, who they recognize as a famed race car designer presumed dead in a crash that we later learn was orchestrated by Jamie, the Angels let them off with a warning. And once Kitty and Brian explain Megan's kidnapping, they race off to arrest him. As Kitty and Brian follow the Angels, their bodies start to change, becoming more like those of the Dirty Angels, who are drawn in a manga-inspired style. Meanwhile, Jamie takes Megan, who is still in some kind of trance, to a bar called The Pit Stop, where he details his jealousy of the brother he killed, while Megan shifts between images of Brian and Rachel. Jamie's reality-warping powers detect the psychic link between Megan and Rachel, and he's able to reach through time and space to strangle Rachel back at the train. It's kind of confusing. Just in time, the Dirty Angels smash their car through the wall, snapping Jamie's control over Rachel. The Angels subsequently destroy the pit stop with an antimatter cannon, and Jamie causes Megan to transform into a series of monsters that attack Brian while he tries to take control of Kitty. After some back and forth, Jamie buries everyone under rubble from the hotel and kidnaps Widget and Lockheed. The issue ends with Brian digging himself out of the rubble with an unconscious Megan in his arms, swearing revenge on his brother's doppelganger. Okay, that was a lot. <laughs> so, <laughs> and Mimi, I know that was a lot for you, dropping you into the middle of this cross-dimensional caper with characters you don't know, with like a genre of comics you don't know. So <laughs> I want to come to your kind of first impressions first. Did this issue, even on a basic level, make any sense to you? Um, yes, it did make sense. Excellent, um, excellent. Yeah. Uh, I didn't have any problem understanding, you know, what was happening. And this might be because although I don't read comics, I do read lots of manga where I'm thrown into worlds where the impossible is made possible. But, you know, what's really funny is that even though I'm used to reading visual and textual narratives, there was one aspect of the comic that I did find slightly hard to follow. And that was the um, the text in the interconnected like speech bubbles. So there's an example of it in the last panel on page 12, where I think it's Brian and Kitty speaking at the same time. And so if there were like these characters um, shown in dialogue using these interconnected speech bubbles, which we don't really see a lot of in manga, I didn't quite understand the sequence in which I was meant to read their dialogue at first, but eventually I got the hang of it. So I did thoroughly enjoy the um the comics though oh well that's good to know sometimes yeah. <laughs> sometimes we've had poor guests that we've dropped in into like an issue that really isn't one of the stronger issues i think this one's like a little bit fun though i think it's got some things to offer um yeah the interconnected panels thing is interesting i mean even for me like as a reader who's used to reading in like <laughs> you know up to down left to right the panels on the first page are very confusingly laid out i struggled with the order of those ones in particular they are not well laid out because you have to go down and then way back up again to complete the sequence. So I apologize for that. That Ooh. wasn't a good way to start at all. <laughs> no, no, but I'm like, I really enjoy the narrative. I think honestly, like um, anyone who's studying manga or like any manga scholar would find this issue kind of interesting because of the, the manga styles that are employed in this issue or chapter. Yeah, well, let's talk about that a little bit. Like, I mean, you said you enjoyed the issue. So like, what are some of the other things that you kind of enjoyed about it? What kind of resonated with you? Did it remind you of sort of other manga texts that you're aware of? Yeah, it did. So certainly, you know, the comic was not something that I'm used to reading, and it's not something that I would choose to read. So um, <laughs> I was really pleasantly surprised, uh, especially with the representation of the manga-esque caricatures. So I think 
that the comic shows a very playful rendering of Japanese visual language, which is basically defined by comic scholars such as Neil Cohn as like a standard dialect that comprises manga's conventional visual vocabulary. So such as like, for example, big eyes and a small mouth, which we see in the depiction of the dirty pair or the dirty angels. And I found it really interesting how the comic pays homage to Osamu Tezuka's Astro Boy, who appears in the background of the scene where uh, Jamie and Megan are entering the pit stop. So many of you might actually already know, but Osamu Tezuka is kind of dubbed as the, the god of manga. And the only, I guess, difference between Tezuka's Astro Boy and the one depicted in the comics is that Tezuka's looks much younger and doesn't have such bushy eyebrows. So so I think I'm like 99% sure that it is an homage to Astro Boy, but I think scholars of uh, Tezuka can confirm that. The other thing that I thought was, you know, maybe this comic paid an homage to Initial D. So Initial D is like a, a street racing manga series series um, that I know about because I have friends who are like car fanatics. Um, So I've never read it, but when I actually look closer at the dates of publication, Excalibur issue 18 actually came out five years before Initial D. And so it made me think that perhaps this comic was in fact influenced by the visual tropes of like Akira, which had a profound impact in North America in the late 1980s. And to some extent, I thought there was this Gundam feel to it as well, especially in the depiction of Brian in the second last panel on page 15 when he's kind of projected on the screen. He kind of reminds me of like a transformer here. (laughs) So... I also think it's informed by elements of the mecha genre, which is a genre of manga and anime that focuses on like robots and battleships because there are lots of cars in this issue. So I'm not sure what the creators may have had access to, and I'm not very familiar with their exposure to Japanese manga and pop culture. So it would be really interesting to um, explore this further, for sure. Yeah, and I mean, I think that's the question that I'll put to Andrew and Mav, because there's a lot of interconnectedness between sort of, maybe I'll say that a different way, that we definitely know that a lot of superhero artists of particularly the 80s and 90s when manga is becoming sort of more popular and available in the North American context, we know that a lot of creators are sort of being influenced by that style. But I know Mav and Andrew, you both know a little bit about manga as well and you know a little bit more about the superhero context. So yeah, okay, go for it. Okay, so so I made, I, I made my, I, I devoted my intro to, um, for people who didn't recognize my vague pop culture references that I don't usually explain. That was a lot of, that was I cribbed it from Speed Racer, which was Speed Racer is based on a, a Japanese manga and anime called uh, Mak Go Go Go. I don't know how to say it in Japanese, but that's the and it's um it premieres in the United States. It's dubbed over in the United States in I want to say it starts in 1967, and it's just in syndication in these like perpetually from the 60s through the 80s, and it just gets this cult following. So throughout the 70s, we start getting Kagaka Ninja Tai Gatchman, which in the United States gets called either G Force or Battle of the Planets, depending on which dub you're looking at. And then we get Robotech, which is part of Super Dimensional Fortress, Macross, or Southern Cross, or so it's it's like three series. Uh, Southern Cross, Macross, and Maspita, Genesis Climber, Maspita. These all get combined. And so it's a lot of anime happening. Voltron comes over, Transor Z comes over. And the reason I'm naming all these is because I don't think the American audience was distinguishing 
anywhere near as well as Mimi is <laughs> um, between between different types of like the fact that there were different genres of anime or like manga wasn't even a word that I knew yet in 1989. I worked in a comic book store and I just knew there were Japanese comics. So I didn't even know the word yet. Probably I, I learned the word in the mid 90s, like 90, 91, 92. So right now it's just Japanese comics are, are coming over and Dirty Pear which is the book that the lovely angels are based on that's becoming that's not really a manga it's a, it's a they're light novels they're they're basically children's books that have pictures but that are more novel-esque and then it, they become an anime and then they become a manga so i'm aware of that in 1989 there's a lot of these weird influences that are just coming over and being dumped into the, just this category of Japanese cartoons, boom, and and we're going wild. I'm seeing them at comic book conventions that I'm going to in in 1990. Is this is January 1990 when this book comes out? So I'm seeing this a lot just in the landscape, and I think it was just trying to capitalize on the very vague concept of Japanese art as a, as a genre. And I don't think they were distinguishing between you know, oh, there are subgenres besides just stuff that came from there which is how I, how much thought I think was put into it, especially how chaotic it is that there are constant references to Dirty Pair and Speed Racer and then weirdly Robotech throughout this, which make no sense together, but yeah. are fun because it's just, it's just new. It's just new to the readers at this point, I think. Do you have thoughts about that, Andrew? Like, I mean, in terms of, I mean, even just how the influence was kind of happening in superhero comics at this time. And like, is this like a self-reflexive yeah. commentary on that at all? Um, I actually have some questions about that frankly um yeah in terms of building context though the first thing to note is that claremont was very much an early adopter uh, of bringing manga influence into north american comics specifically through the gateway drug of frank miller in the wolverine miniseries in the early 1980s which is based exclusively on lone wolf and cub very um, much so <laughs> and if anyone doesn't know lone wolf and cub it's called the mandalorian on disney and it's just <laughs> lone wolf and cub but, but not set in feudal japan <laughs> <laughs> uh, and that's it. So Claremont's familiar. He, he's mm -hmm. definitely got some exposure there. And it's a very different genre that he's reflecting because there's no lone wolf and cub in this issue. It's not no. that at all. Uh, as Mav says, it's it's kind of drawing from a lot of influences. Now, as Mimi said, Akira is is big at this point in time. Like like it, it is blowing the doors open for for manga to be imported um so like there's cyberpunk to it but like i do agree that it's more of an anime um inflection that we're seeing it particularly tonally um i would also argue that there might be some north american sci-fi getting in the mix as well particularly i would note death race there's a lot of death race um to this story so for me this all boils down to like this this weird melting pot thing happening as mav said it's kind of hitting a broad target um but i also have the question of what it's doing with that target and i can't decide if this thing is like making making fun uh, of, of manga and anime coming over or if it is appreciative of them and I'm not sure mm -hmm. okay I, I, I'm curious I, I read it as very sincere and I'm curious so I was familiar with Dirty Pair and as they that's probably the most parody-esque element that's in this but that's ex there's nothing parody about the lovely the lovely angels or the Dirty Pair is what the actual they're, comic they're called. pretty extreme though like to me that 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 reads as um kind of lampshading maybe a little bit like, like except that that's how the book is like literally that's yeah. the actual comic no, no, is I get just that, that. yeah I, it just it, it seems like they're not sort of conforming to the world that they're within that they stand okay. out as being kind of absurdist even within this kind of absurd world i don't know I, i'd be very curious to hear what what, what mimi yeah. thinks about that yeah i was gonna so bring it back to back to you mimi like mm -hmm. i mean that question of parody like did you read this as a parody do you think that that's a valuable way to discuss this from your kind of knowledge 
knowledge of both the history of manga, but also your experience reading manga, did this read like a parody to you? So I'm going to answer the question in like two parts. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. <if that's> okay. <laughs> so uh, to go back to the question of like, you know, if I read this as a parody or like the depiction of the Dirty Angels as a parody. First, I don't think I, I didn't really read the comic as a parody of manga in that the comic creators were like imitating the visual aesthetics of the genre to necessarily poke fun at it to some extent, but rather as like an example of the cultural ebb and flow of visual creation that has been around since the time of Tesca. So, you know, Osama Tesca was heavily influenced by Walt Disney and vice versa. And many manga critics have also pointed out kind of like this hybrid formation of manga as we know it today. Um, so a really well-known example of this cultural ebb and flow of tropes, right, might be, for example, like the movie Lion King, which was influenced from like Tezuka's Kimba the White Lion, which is a shonen manga series. And it basically resulted in unresolved disputes about you know, intellectual property rights between the Japanese and American studios. And I think people always like to kind of judge the quality of one visual aesthetic over another to argue things like this is a ripoff of the original or this is like cultural appropriation or this is not real manga, this is not real comics, this is disrespecting cultures or whatever. But instead of interpreting works that incorporate visual tropes that are distinctive to a particular medium as a form of culture, it's probably more productive to think of these tropes outside of this kind of cultural way of seeing and thinking about things and instead really understand visual language as a form of like translation which is something that Neil Cohn also talks about you know he argues that certain visual tropes or what he calls graphic emblems of Japanese visual language uh, ranges for example how expressions of like lust in Japanese are conveyed through someone who has like a bloody nose or how ideas of sleep are conveyed through like a little snot bubble I don't know if it's a snot bubble or like an air bubble that comes yeah. out of the character's nose <laughs> but basically you know Neil Kung claims or what his claim is that these tropes present themselves in manga but they're you know reinterpreted and represented in different ways across cultures and I think that is where you know the beauty of these art forms lie and the second reason why I thought this question was really interesting was because I'm not sure if this comics has a place within like the tradition of Japanese manga stories mm -hmm. um, but it perhaps can be read as an early example of like original English language manga or like OEL manga which basically refers to manga produced outside of Japan in English and so the visual tropes are like inevitably informed uh, and shaped in different ways than they have been in Japan. I really love where you're going with that answer because we have a tendency um, I think as like guilty western white people to assume everything is appropriation <laughs> without not me no, like, <laughs> I will say that I have a tendency to assume that um, because I'm trying to apologize for everything all the time. But I mean, it's really productive what you're saying about sort of the transcultural nature of this art form, like in general, and how there's always been this cross pollination between anime and Western mm -hmm. animation and between different types of comics. And that's a really productive thing to keep in mind. And yeah, so do we want to talk just a little bit about Dirty Pair? Because we've mentioned it, but we haven't really kind of talked about. So it was this, I mean, Mav, you already kind of mentioned okay. it but i mean it, it was like a japanese thing that becomes like a comic yeah. that adam warren who if you don't know him from dirty pair you might know him from empowered um yeah. 
and uh, also Marvel yeah. manga verse. Mm -hmm. uh, so Adam Warren is an American. I believe he's American. Um, he's a, but he's certainly Western. I believe he's a, he's American comic book artist who was hired by Eclipse was the company at the time, which gained the rights to the Japanese light novel, essentially YA novel series called Dirty Pair. So, so it's not quite a manga yet in when this is coming out in Japan. It is, however, a series of books and anime, Japanese cartoons, animated cartoons. And then Warren and another guy whose name escapes me at the moment, um, basically because the other guy leaves and it becomes just Warren's project eventually. Um, they make an American series with what they were trying to do as a heavy, a heavy manga influence. And again, I'm using that term very generically because there are several subgenres of manga. It, it would be like saying they made a book with a comic book influence. But it could mean anything. <laughs> um, they're, they're, and, and it's exactly saying that. So they're trying to do kind of boys manga. And they're trying to do that in an American style. And then as time goes on, it becomes more and more cheesecakey, and because that's just Adam Warren's sensibilities. But as a general rule, the concept of Dirty Player are... It's Kay and Yuri. They're two 19-year-old space cops in the future, and they're sent to investigate fugitives. And every time they're sent to do something, they usually capture the guy, but they almost always blow everything up and kill way more many, way more people than they should be because they're just wrecking balls. So their official name is the Lovely Angels, but all their colleagues call them the Dirty Pair, which they hate. So it's a lot of them blowing stuff up and being sexy. That's the storyline of Dirty Pair. <laughs> That's like literally every... the plot of every issue for 30 40 years has been that okay yeah like i mean i want to talk about the gender politics of this comic kind of in relation to that and you know we can talk about whether it's appropriate to talk about that in relation to the cross-cultural context as well and representations of race and whether that's a relevant thing to talk about in this context too but i mean maybe i'll bring that back to you mimi so like does manga have anything in common with north american comics in terms of like representation and gender which is obviously something we've been talking about on this podcast a lot in terms of the very problematic legacy of representations of female characters in superhero comics, something we come back to a lot with Megan. And I really want to talk about Megan in this issue and the bond with Rachel as well. Like, does manga have this same sort of history of sexist trope? Like, I'm, tropes, like, I know that we have a lot of different genres in manga in the sense that it's a little bit different than North American comics, where, like, the audience has been so heavily male. And, like, I know that there's a lot more diversity in manga than there has historically been in North American comics when it took a lot longer for that diversity to kind of so yeah, like, I mean, I was wondering just about that in general, like, is representation a thing that comes up in your work as well? Or what are some of the sort of different or similar questions that get asked in, in some of your research? Yeah, um, this is a really great question. So often, you know, people who are unfamiliar with, you know, Japanese anime and manga, they might assume that, you know, these mediums depict quote unquote, I'm doing air quotes here, like perverted images of like men and women and I don't know, those in between, but that argument doesn't really stand or what it does is it really reduces a complex history of manga and anime to visual tropes that are deployed in a certain genre and then taken out of their cultural and political context and kind of labeled as like immoral or quote-unquote perverse so you know the question of does manga 
have sexist tropes? That's a really difficult question to answer because it, I think it needs to be situated in relation to the work in question, the mangaka or author's intent. And we can't just identify certain tropes out of context and label them as sexist. Also, critical discussions on the role of like shoujo, which I guess roughly translates to like adolescent girls and bishonen, which refers to like beautiful boys and, you know, manga and anime are often understood to occupy like a, a very liminal fluid space that transcends or defies binary ways of understanding representations of like biological sex. So are the representations of the dirty pair or the dirty angels in Excalibur sexist? I guess like one could argue like yes, uh, because it depicts girls and you know skimpy outfits uh, that objectify their bodies. But a better answer would be how were these girls depicted in is it Haruka Takachiho's works of fiction? And did the comic book creators replicate that representation and capture the cultural and generic context of the source text and that representation? Or did they do something else? Because I haven't read Takachiho's works, I can't say, but as fans and scholars of manga and comics, uh, we should be aware of how things are packaged and then maybe repackaged and represented in certain cultural contexts that might or might not always translate well yeah and i think that's a huge problem for like a lot of westerners who don't have the proper cultural context like studying some of these texts because we just don't have an equivalent of something like boys love manga here like i mean something like slash fiction is almost the closest thing but that's not a visual medium for the most part and so it's just when i first heard about the existence of that i was just like this is we just don't have a reference point for this. Like, this is not a genre of North American comics. I mean, North American comics have expanded a lot in, like, the last decade or two decades, and, like, we have more genres, but still, there's not, like, a long historical tradition of comics aimed at women that aren't just <laughs> romance comics from the 50s. That, like, just isn't a thing here. So it's just, it's really, really weird and fascinating to, like, explore those different histories. And, you know, I know what I don't know about these things, but I don't know enough about these things. Um, maybe I'll come to you, Andrew, with that question about kind of the sexism in this comic as somebody who does a lot of work on gender and representation in Claremont what was kind of your take on this question like how do you think we can understand the gender representation in this comic in relation to the dirty pair well I was really interested in what Mimi was saying again just because like specific comic scholars good ones Scott Bukatman Richard Reynolds have actually made the argument that there is sort of a, a superhero equivalent of shoujo and that's Chris Claremont's X-Men do you know mm. what I mean that, that this is the genre oh. of superhero comics that is right for a, a largely female audience or maybe even just a largely queer audience um for me that's always been kind of one of the more fascinating points and as as mimi says i don't want to generalize but the idea that manga has these different demographics means that you're you're segregating you're you're, you're creating these intense separate separations that are like generalizations at the same time you're saying that you know this is the boys club and this is the girls club and that's uncomfortable because that obviously blows up sex and gender as a sort of point of difference but at the same time uh, as Mimi was suggesting like the ability for manga historically to create spaces for female comic readers is incredible uh, and, and there's a whole lot to kind of celebrate there that North American superhero comics as even Scott McCloud has noted they didn't do that they blundered that they only focused on the boys and as a result of that a lot of the problematic tropes that we have that are kind of misogynistic in, in superhero comics developed so in this particular issue I'm again just like completely at a loss. Like I, I think there's a way in which you could argue that Claremont is saying, ha ha ha, aren't manga comics silly? You should read more Excalibur. But there's another way that says 
this is kind of fun uh, and interesting. Uh, and it doesn't necessarily um, denigrate it directly. But again, I just go in circles. I don't I don't have an answer. It's the thing that fascinates me about this issue. I mean, the contrast between the regular Excalibur characters and like the Dirty Angels might be a starting point in terms of, you know, who's getting agency, who's getting whatever. But that's a really hard question to answer with the nature of the Dirty Angels as characters where they are just these kind of like chaotic excessive characters and I don't like really think it makes sense to like read complex like agency into these characters because that's just right. not the nature of the characters so I didn't really know what to do with that either I uh... <laughs> Mav can save us I, <laughs> I, I, I mean I've Again, I was familiar with them. I when I read this the first time, I was like, "Oh, well, they're doing a crossover with Dirty Pair, which they don't own. That's interesting." And then since oh. I'd read, I'd read the Eclipse comic, um, I'd seen some of the cartoons. I remember reading this, going, "Okay, but why?" Because nothing comes of it. And just spoilers for next issue, for next week of our show, they just kind of go away. Like, there's no, like, it's not resolved. It's sort of a, here's the thing we're doing. And then it's interesting. And because I I do want to move on and make sure we also talk about just the art style, the artistic choices that are made in this comic. Because there's a point in this comic where Kitty notices the the art style changing. And, like, the dirty pair's there and it's clearly a we're doing this world where we are adopting manga influence we want you to know this but i don't know why because it appears like there's supposed to be a storyline reason but it's never explained it's just sort of a yeah we thought this would be interesting to do right now and it was interesting like i uh, but like i don't i still don't know what i'm supposed to learn 30 years later (laughs) yeah uh, i mean i was very curious about kitty identifying the style change in terms of getting back to those questions of agency between the characterization of you know the white western characters in this comic and i mean mimi brought up though that you know whether we want to read the dirty angels as japanese or not is an open question they're rendered in certain like manga styles but whether or not we're supposed to read them as japanese is an open question but at the very least kitty has more self-consciousness than those female characters which is something to note at the very least even though i'm not entirely sure what to do with it getting back to our question about parody i mean it definitely does seem like a loving tribute. As Mav was saying earlier, like they're just doing dirty pair. Yeah. <laughs> Like that does come across. Like I mean, everything they say, everything they say in this book could be a line out of Warren's book. There's nothing. It's typically when you do a parody, you'll use one tiny little element and then turn it up to eleven and just like you know overdo it. Like right, like if (laughs) if I'm doing if I'm doing if I'm if I'm on Saturday Night Live and I'm doing an impression of the president or or Putin or something, I just like Saturday Night Live's impression of Putin is always he never wears a shirt. Well, that's not true. Putin wears a shirt all the time, but on but for the parody he never does because you're you're turning up the ridiculousness of him even higher to like make a parody this isn't that it really is just sort of that this is how dirty pair reads it's you know they they do goofy stuff and then they accidentally blow things up which is what happens here like they frequently 
accidentally blow things up while trying to um, capture the bad guy. And that's the story. Like that's it, it, it's funny. I mean, I don't. I'm not. I'm not trying to criticize Dirty Pair because you know I I enjoyed it when when I was 15. But it's not um like it's not deeper than that. I've since read lots of lots and lots and lots of better manga. Um, you mentioned Andrew mentioned um, Lone Wolf and Cub, which yeah. I had not read at this point. And now having read it, I see where you know I retrospectively see what Claremont was doing when Wolverine series. But I had read Dirty Pair when this came out, and I was like, oh, he's doing dirty pair okay and i'd seen speed racer and i was like okay but i don't know why he's doing speed racer and that's what leaves me it's a tribute but it's a it's just sort of a i would like to reference this today yeah and then i'm background right it's not yeah there's there's no emergent theme or statement it's just no yeah and i don't know why it's just interesting because it like hey i just want you to know that there are comics that are not made in america (laughs) well i mean you know maybe this gets back to some of the occasionally unproductive excesses of Chris Claremont's writing of Excalibur where perhaps he doesn't have the hand of an editor that he needs on occasion. (laughs) We have mentioned this on previous episodes. As much as we love the looseness of Excalibur and as much as we love the creativity of Excalibur, there are times when it can be a bit, um, what's a polite word of saying this? No, I'm just going to say wankery. Um, (laughs) Maybe that's like, you know, maybe kind of what we're dealing with here a little bit but um but i mean any- this, is not, this is not as bad as some of the other there's been i mean listeners of the show will know i am not shy about calling an issue of excalibur bad when i think it's bad yeah yeah this is not bad no i don't it's think it's bad either. So either it's just it's got some weirdnesses to it that um maybe if i mean okay so sad sad notes for people who are listening we're coming we're quickly coming to a close of claremont's time on this book there aren't many issues left and i wonder was he being rushed and trying to get things out because like he was getting busy with other x books and a lot going on and and i i just don't think it was getting the attention that it needed and there might have been an explanation that was coming that just never comes this is never really dealt with because this, this is the only time in the cross time caper where we really do do a genre exploration as opposed to a high concept exploration. Well, let's talk more about like the stylistic change then and the sort of significance of them sort of changing into these more manga inspired characters, because the thing that I do like, and I don't know if I totally feel like it pulls it off, but we've complained about sort of the art changes in Excalibur before. And I think Crosstime Caper introduces a possibility of like bringing a guest artist on board who can do something like this right like do something in another genre because they are going between dimensions they are like going between different versions of reality and there's a real opportunity there to have artists represent version different versions of reality and that's a really wonderful way of working in a guest artist right almost like neil gaiman sandman right yeah yeah exactly exactly so i mean again a real opportunity to do that here and i am happy that at least it's trying to do that rather than to have kind of some of the rushed fill-in art that was just we sort of disagreed about whether artists were trying to imitate davis the style or not but certainly it just by trying to do it in any way it just like didn't live up to expectations so i do like the attempted experimentation here but i want to come yeah sorry mab go ahead well i have a statement about it but it's going to lead into a question for me because it's a um so for me this half works and what i what i mean by it half works is unlike the other fill-in artists who have been frequently very critical of on this show there's intentionality here this was drawn by Dennis Jensen, who is not a huge name, 
I don't know a lot of his other work. Um, I went and looked for his other credits from the time period, and there are a few, but they're mostly like fill-in issues and stuff and like Marvel Comics present. So maybe he's done a bunch of other stuff that I'm just not familiar with. And I liked him in that I felt like there was intentionality behind the choices. Like when art style changes, it's because he's doing something. He's making a statement of, look, as we go deeper and deeper into this race, I'm becoming more and more vaguely manga-esque, right? Like I get what he's doing, even if I don't know why, but it's an intentional choice as opposed to I'm running out of time to draw the book, which is how I felt about some of the previous people, right? <laughs> so, yeah. so like, so like I, I like the intentionality where I think it fails on the very, on the cold open where we're going through this thing where is it Rachel? Is it Megan? Who's who? In your explanation, you decided that we were in your recap. You decided we were seeing Megan because that's what the um, what the captions tell us. I'm not sure the captions are right <laughs> based on what they're saying, and I don't know because I don't know enough about. Since this isn't our regular artist, I can't follow it and go, "Oh, okay, this is how he draws Megan, and this is how he draws Rachel." Because I don't know. I've never heard of this person before. So the choices, when he's doing the choice to become more manga-esque, I think it comes across a little too subtle for me because it's not it's it's not always clear whether the changes are because it's a different artist or because it's doing a thing, yeah, at least yeah. for me. And that, and that was problematic for me, which is why I'm kind of wondering from Mimi, who who is approaching this purely as just a scholar of the genre and the media form, as opposed to an Excalibur fan. And she has no baggage of, oh, but why isn't this Alan Davis, right? And she certainly has no, well, it's better than Marshall Rogers. She's not doing that, right? She's only no. looking at, she's only looking this at this as, well, okay, they're clear, they're clearly trying to ape a manga style and and it's not quite clear whether it's a shonen style. Like there's some there's lots of weird mishmash in here. Does it work for you as they're becoming like, look, let's just drop Astro Boy in here. And I can tell that there's definitely yeah. Like there's definitely a we want to draw like Astro Boy for a bit, and then it's suddenly more like Dirty Pair. The chaos of it was weird for me, so I'm wondering if how that plays to somebody who's not just an Excalibur fan. Yeah, I mean, like I'll kick that back to you, Mimi. Like, I mean, so what did you make of this stylistic commentary? Like, what are some of the kind of general style differences that we might think about between? And again, I'm gonna say manga, even though I know that there are multiple genres, so we're talking about many, many, many different styles here. I mean, basically, I want to just ask that question. Like, what did you make of the stylistic comment? here did it work for you or was it too much of a mishmash of styles that it was sort of hard to read what was even going on here what do you think so to answer like you know maybe what are the similarities and differences between like you know mm -hmm. japanese uh, manga tropes and aesthetics uh, versus like uh, american or british comics i think um scott mcleod and neil Kona have talked about the stylistic differences between manga and north american comics some of these include as i had mentioned earlier like the big eyes and the small mouths but there's also differences in like motion lines and panel transitions i think it was uh, scott mcleod who said that there were more like moment to moment and aspect to aspect panel transitions in manga and more action to action panel transitions in american comics so the extent to which this is true with current manga i don't know but sometimes you know instead of looking for differences which is off which often kind of risks a binary construct of oh these far eastern tropes or these western tropes right i say anyone who is really interested in learning about the american 
American tradition, the British tradition, Japanese tradition of comics has to be informed by the scholarship that's out there, or else we do tend to risk like essentializing uh, cultures and reducing them to tropes. But you know, in terms of the representation of the dirty pair and like this sudden transition of like this manga esque style in the narrative, yeah, there's like that one scene where Kitty says, "Our faces, our bodies, are becoming more and more abstractly stylized." And I read that, and I was like, "Really?" <laughs> because um. <laughs> The lines appear much cleaner and less stylized <laughs> than their original state, right?、Um, and I'm not, I'm not sure if I'm allowed to say that, but like aside from my personal opinions, I found it really interesting that Brian and Kitty, in their sort of manga esque or manga stylized forms, are at their weakest in terms of strength. Like they are overpowered、mm-hmm. by Jamie. And one way to read this scene, I thought, is that you know maybe Claremont is suggesting that the emergence of manga in the West is Somehow, like diluting the genre of comics. I don't know,、uh, but could it be a criticism against like the popularity of manga that the creators felt anxious about in the late 1980s or 90s? Unfortunately, I can't really say if this is the case based on just reading like one comic out of a complete series and being so unfamiliar with like Claremont's works. But I thought that there was definitely that. Insinuation being conveyed through the artwork and the narrative, but many of you have commented that it's more of a celebration rather than a parody. So I found that really interesting. Yeah, I don't know. What do you think, Andrew and Mav? What do you think about this? The self-reflexive aspect here. I mean, there is a thematics to this issue in terms of loss of identity. You know, warping reality. I mean,、yeah. there's a theme of warping reality throughout Cross Time Caper, but I mean, particularly in this issue where we have two women who can't tell where they begin and end. And we have Jamie, who's existing in two different、mm-hmm. dimensional spaces, right? So, I mean, what's going on with them kind of translating into these manga characters and kind of losing their sense of self? Like, did this fit in with the larger theme? I think so. I think the idea of being altered by your setting—that the, the the capers they're on are starting to affect them—works. For me, one thing, like like a really stupid small thing that could really help is if we didn't have the manga style on the cover、uh, and, and we didn't know that that was coming and just kind of got to watch it, watch it happen a little bit more. Gradually, that would have helped a lot. I, I also think that、um, stylistically, I would have liked Alan Davis. I, I know we would always want Alan Davis on an issue,、yeah. but I, I would have liked Alan Davis's capacity to establish that kind of ultra British perfected visage thing that he does,、um, and then contrast with the mon- that with the manga style. I think that would have been much more effective and, and would have kind of signaled that transition a bit more. Whereas the artwork in this issue is, I don't know, I'm closer to manga to begin with. Than Alan Davis is, so so I don't know. I, I think there are ways in which the artwork isn't quite doing it for me here. And again, it just might be what Mav was saying that the three of us particularly are ruined for appreciating any book that's not drawn by Alan Davis. <laughs> Yeah, and ruined, and also I think I mean you said you would have liked to have seen Davis try this. Even if Davis didn't draw the manga parts, right? I'm trying to think, there are, there have been books in the past. Havoc Wolverine Meltdown. I was going to say drawn by, two,、yeah. drawn by two different artists. Or if I want to go to Dirty Laundry Comics, there are lots of books where, as a stylistic choice, we have two different artists working on different parts of the book, right? And that might have worked for me. The idea of doing the translation when I don't have a status quo, yeah, 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 is hard. And the same thing happens with the artwork when you're trying to do the transfer of Okay, now we're moving to this more abstracted style, as Kitty says. Which you know, why does why is Kitty suddenly aware of the artwork? I don't know. Like, I, I like, <laughs> like, cause she's well, she's been on, 
Yeah, but she's been the one who's been aware of tropes in the. I mean, Kitty and Kurt are the two that are usually aware of tropes. Yes, right. Because they, we, we saw that back in Inferno when she's aware of the movie tropes and she's aware of the way that she's changing within that space. And that wasn't cross time caper, but I mean, there is a precedent for that. And Kurt is aware of tropes when they go into the, um, you know, in, in the issue where they meet Claremont and Byrne and he's like, yeah, I'm done with these two people. Like, I understand that. And those make sense to me because I've got a stake in the ground to know where it's a throwaway comment it doesn't affect the rest of the narrative mm-hmm. kitty's comment here feels like it's supposed to matter it feels like it's supposed to be diegetic it's not just a throwaway yeah temporarily breaking into the wall but i don't know why and there's so much weird going on that i can't be sure it's supposed to be diegetic right like i know deadpool or she hawk breaks the fourth wall I know that, or Gwynpool, you know, I know these are characters who are using their magic comic book powers to break the fourth wall. And I know when Nightcrawler does it at other points in Excalibur, he's not. It's just a wink and a nod to the audience, right? Mm -hmm. I don't know what's happening in this issue. And I've had plenty of chances to reread it over the last 35 years. And I still don't know. Well, I mean, what I'll say about the Rachel Megan thing is that it was definitely confusing. I didn't have thoughts about whether it was confusing on purpose or not, (laughs) but it definitely was confusing. Um, Let's talk about that a little bit because it's been a dynamic that's been building. So let's like touch base with the ongoing story a little bit here. So we had them having this weird like psychic physical fusion way back in, I think Excalibur number eight, the one where they're testing out Brian's powers in the danger room back in New York um, after Inferno. So we have that starting there and then we've had times where Rachel doesn't want to get near Megan because weird stuff happens and like they had the weird fusion that happened again like in Excalibur number 15 I think that like caused them to like jump out of it could have been home anyway so this has been happening for a while what is happening here like what is this plot like what is the larger kind of significance of it I like the idea that it's cementing some type of bond between them and it's a way that they can help understand themselves and their own powers and I mean I'm always up for like bonds between female characters and all of this stuff Stuff. And we're going to talk about it a little bit more in the next issue we're as well. Next issue. Yeah, we're going to have a lot of it next issue. But like, let's just like do an opening salvo for it here. If you had any thoughts about it, because it relates, I think, to Jamie's sort of warping of reality and him being sort of a constant antagonist to Excalibur. And but yeah, I mean, one of the issues I've been having with Jamie, like especially it's getting more so in this issue, is just that his powers are so ill-defined and he can do anything that I don't really know where I'm grounded in this space. And that's interesting, but then. And it just keeps going on, you know, and we're going to get it keep going on in the next issue as well, like spoilers. But yeah, I don't know. Did anybody really like have any thoughts about sort of the thematics of the Megan Rachel sort of identity confusion? Why is this here and what is it doing for us? I think it is a way to have those two characters interact because they don't really have anything to interact over otherwise. I think they are connected by this mutual sort of lack of self-definition. Um, obviously, that's that's much more so the case with Megan, but I think it's interesting to connect it to Phoenix's lack of self-definition as well, because that's a theme that sort of started Excalibur, but then maybe got left behind a little bit. I think it's a thread that never develops, but I don't hate where it's going. Like I, I think there's, mm-hmm. there's some fruitful territory there. I mean, I like that we're exploring their powers and sort of the nature of their powers and the limits of their powers and the fact that they're doing doing this in sort of isolation of their relationships with men I find interesting I mean we'll say more about it in the next issue where we're going to see this sort of develop a little bit more but yeah Mav did you want to jump in Uh, I'll talk about more of it next issue I think there's vagueness to it which in you know I'm trying to not spoiler it too much for 
for next issue, but when particularly when the two of their powers are interacting and then you interact that gestalt with Jamie's powers, all three of which are vaguely defined at best. Probably Phoenix is, is the one that's the most clear and she's just mostly all powerful. So it becomes weird. Like, you know, I understand the grabbing of the strings from last issue, but when he uses the strings to reach through and grab Rachel through the mirror on the train, I don't know what's happening there. I, I, yeah. I'm not clear what he actually and yes I get that it's a it's a comic you know it's a story about people with magic powers fine but I don't <laughs> know what the magic did can I come back to Mimi about it and ask like so you said that this issue did make sense to you and that you sort of felt like from the kind of things that you read that you know you're used to certain kinds of spaces with certain kinds of rules like I mean what did you make of some of this stuff from this issue like were you bothered by like some of these mechanics in the way that we seem to be bothered by it or were you kind of just going with the flow a little bit i was more like going with the flow because this is so new to me yeah i i was really confused actually the names of the characters so the person that gets caught by jamie is the one that has the long blonde hair right yes megan okay and okay 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 but then she's a shapeshifter so she becomes all these different people which is super confusing if you don't know that Okay. And is not rendered clearly at all. <laughs> no, I I think I I pretty much got the gist of the <laughs> what was going on, even though it was a bit weird. What I was confused about though was when like the um, because I didn't know that the what is it Kitty's like widget is it widget the the machine I didn't know that that was an actual character and and then I realized <laughs> oh there's eyes on it and then I wasn't quite sure like what was going on when he's eating the car I was what's going on uh, but then you know I kind I kind of um got it when I saw the the this car can, can I ask her I, I'm curious just as a deviation spoilers for you yes <laughs> widget is not has not been explained and we've been like joking oh. with our with our listeners because because since the comic never bothered to explain who or what Widget was, he just shows up one day. We've not been ex- explaining it, and it's going to be explained like 20 or 30 issues from now. So wow. to you, <laughs> what do you think Widget is and what's going Because you said, you, I mean, you had to have sort of filled in some gaps for yourself, but you yeah. don't have the 16 issues before this. No. So- um <laughs> I thought he was just like a machine, like uh, maybe from the future, um, and that's it. That's like a pretty, <laughs> pretty good, good. Like, yeah. That's a functional way to look at it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but yeah, it, so the weird thing about Widget is Widget gets dropped on them and has not been explained. And frankly, in this issue, yeah. Widget probably talks more than he has yeah. the entire yeah. the entire book. And oh. there's a familiarity between Kitty and Widget that that was not their last issue so we don't know where it came from like there's very much a yeah they're friends they talk they (laughs) communicate and widget's dialogue up until this point has been limited to the phrases oh gosh oh golly and oh wow which is where our podcast name comes so this is way more than widget's ever talked before so i was like really (laughs) curious i was like oh okay yeah i mean you know the presence of like robots from the future coming to the past to help uh, like children in the past is like a common trope I would say and Doraemon so <laughs> so maybe it's like that or maybe it's more sinister than that I don't know 
I, I I think it's amazing that it, can we have her back in like thirty issues? I think you've so done cute. amazingly. <laughs> Thank that's, you. That's awesome. I mean, yeah. I mean, I I want to get into kind of some of the like Jamie Rachel Megan stuff, but because it's going to be sort of the meat of the next issue, like maybe we can table it and kind of come back to it. Are there any final thoughts or things that anybody is desperate to talk about? I've got a couple. I've got a I couple. Have, I have a weird one that I, that it it bugs me. Who changed Rachel's clothes and why? So so Rachel, when we see her, is in, and this is again the confusion between which one's Rachel and which one's Megan. One of them is sleeping in an oversized t-shirt and one's sleeping in an oversized shirt with sleeves. The train crashes. Rachel ends up in the ICU on the train. And then the next time we see her, Rachel's in a little pink teddy. And I'm not sure why they took an unconscious woman and put her in a little little pink (laughs) nightie. I don't don't know why that was done. I mean, Excalibur loves sexy underwear and sexy pajamas. We've talked about that. So I'm not sure. I'm I'm not sure who made that decision because Kitty's gone. So apparently either Kurt or Alistair decided to, you know, undress this unconscious woman and put her in sexier clothing while she's unconscious. (laughs) These are are good questions. I'm curious about where any of their clothes are coming from at all because they got sent on the this like cross-dimensional adventure I, I would like if there was more of a callback to like they keep picking up clothes from different worlds and are just like wearing a mishmash of those clothes because yeah, that would be not, amazing there it's is, not even though, their train there's, a, little. there's a scene in um i think it's a future issue where mm-hmm. they talk about all the clothes that they found on the train mm-hmm. okay there is there is there is yeah, yeah. and they mentioned like kitty's torn dress and all that mm-hmm. kind of stuff yeah. Yeah, this is not their train though, because this is this, they just yeah yeah they were, yeah they were they're, like, they're accumulating all those costumes, which I find funny. I just think like I wish that you know there are these things that I love cross town capers so much, but I feel like there's an opportunity to redo it and just like make it so tight and so good, like basically by having Alan Davis go back and draw all of it. Well, mine was a style one, which is that I had to point out Kurt's adorable little overalls that he puts on to do repairs on the train, because <laughs> we're always doing Kurt fashion wash, and I love his tendency oh. to. Adopt the correct outfit for the correct situation. And he's like wearing like spotted pajama pants and a bathrobe to have breakfast with Alistair. He's like killing it on fashion in his in his minor appearances in this issue. He's making the most of his panel time. <laughs> And my other one that I had to point out, which is part of the longer story, and it's going to be like a little bit spoilery, is the scene where Kitty goes in the car and Kurt doesn't want to let her go in the car. And he's like, I should go. And like, she's like, no, I can do it. And he's like, okay, but be careful. And this is going to be so retrospectively tragic. And it's just a minor thing if you're just reading this issue, but they're not going to see each other again for a while. And he's going to have feelings about it. And uh, it's a thing. I thought it was a little overbearing the way it's written here. This is the... Uh, because it just sin not because I mind Kurt being being big brothery to Kitty. I love that Kurt is big big brothery to Kitty. I did not think that this was a realistic portrayal of Kurt's um, big brother relationship with Kitty. Because to me, every point up until now in Excalibur, she has been the one of these five people that he trusts most. He is, you know, he knows Rachel from ahead of time, but he doesn't know her as well as he knows Kitty. Kitty is the one that he has the most confidence in. Like, we, if we look back at Mojo Mayhem, when Kurt's like, nah, you know, let her go away for a few days. You know, she's, yeah, I know she's 15, but, you know, she's a grown-up. She can do whatever she wants. And I would rather him be like, all right, just be careful than for him to be like, no, 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 you're not allowed. You're a little girl, because I don't, I don't think Kurt sees her like that. That's the issue for me. He's giving an order. 
He doesn't do that yeah. with her. They, they consult. They're equals. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know. I'm going to push back on that a little bit because this is a very different situation than going off to see your favorite band for like the weekend <laughs> in your regular reality. This is like a crazy car just got made that wants to take her somewhere on somewhere they just crashed and they have no idea where they are. Do you not think he has a little bit of a responsibility to like <laughs> keep her safe as like someone who is the older person in this relationship? No. no really? I don't, don't. Really? I, don't. I hate that he tried I, to do that. I uh, c- remember this storyline starts when Kurt, like this entire book series starts when Kurt basically tries to get himself killed and Kitty has to, you know, take him to task. That's what we happens in Sword is Drawn. Kurt knows that Kitty is more responsible than he is. He is very aware of that in my head and he, and he knows that he's older, but to me, their relationship works because he is the one adult that she knows sees her as an equal in a way that not even Colossus or Wolverine do. And that's what that or and certainly not Storm. That's what works about their relationship to me. So, no, I do not like that Kurt talks talks down to her. Huh, I don't her, read him as talking her. down to her here. I think that's like overstating it slightly for my <laughs> reading of it. But like, um, I hate that scene. Wow. <laughs> Wow, I don't know, but she puts him in his place pretty quickly. I mean, yeah. to me, it's like a pretty like reasonable reaction to like a big brother, little sister thing of like, I want to go off in this dangerous thing on my own in a place that we just crashed in and like half our team is missing. And like, maybe this isn't the best idea. Like, come on. But that's, that's not, not how he reasonable. frames it. He frames it as no, get back in the house, which yeah. that, that bothered okay. me. I, I see. <laughs> I hate it. <laughs> well, I mean, the foreshadowing aspect of this is that he ends up being yeah. kind of right. So oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> Kitty's frequently wrong in her I'm a grown up I can do this I, I, I firmly believe that remember all going back you know Professor X is a jerk it's like no Professor X was right so I'm okay with Kitty being wrong she's absolutely wrong here but I, I just don't like that Kurt I, I don't like him ordering around I, it, in, in a way that if it were literally almost any other X-Man it wouldn't have bothered me huh. <laughs> it bothers me from him yeah, I mean, that's interesting. I mean, I feel like it's a like understandable emotional reaction under the circumstances. I'll put it that way. Like he is in the wrong, but like I can understand where he's coming from. I got to be his PR manager. What am I going to do? <laughs> Mimi, do you have any final thoughts that you want to contribute to the end of this episode? We haven't come back to you for a while. I apologize. No, I love listening. This is this has been so insightful. Um, I'm actually really excited to read like the other issues that came before and the ones that come after this. So, but I do just want to go back maybe to um, what Andrew was talking about this lack of like self definition because I I find that really interesting. Not only in the depiction of the female characters, but we were also discussing it in the style of the combination between like the Japanese visual language and the the original English language manga visual language. So I wondered if this chapter or this issue is perhaps indicating like the limitations of manga tropes in the superhero comics genre because it looks so very odd and weird and deliberately so um maybe to convey a degree of strangeness which might be a commentary on the fact that maybe some things just don't match um i feel that this issue and all of your discussion today has really given me lots to think about and appreciate so i'm very thankful <laughs> oh well, god, us too. Yeah. god we're so <laughs> thankful to have you um the last thing that i wanted to do is to just 
just spotlight a couple of letters from the Swords Jokes letters page. So we did Mojo Mayhem just, you know, an episode ago, but uh, we do have the upcoming, (laughs) upcoming special edition Mojo Mayhem preview in this letters page, which we tried to slot Mojo Mayhem mostly into continuity where it goes in the series. But as Mm -hmm. we can see from this preview, it hadn't apparently actually come out yet. Yeah, it was published in a very weird spot. I remember when it came out and then going, oh, Brian's got the really old costume that's weird yeah (laughs) so (laughs) so there is not one but two letters in this letter page um correcting the math from excalibur number 14 that like 10 to the 23rd thing that we have there was this little exchange between alistair and kitty where you know he's like that means and kitty has like the icy dialogue that's like i know what it means so we have two readers um correcting them about not saying that number correctly (laughs) which is like (laughs) funny that they printed two of those letters and the editorial response is thank you for pointing out our mistake guys you can rest assured that terry is being punished for his error in mathematics lockheed is handling it (laughs) (laughs) and i'm just gonna do a real short one which is from reed oh i am not gonna pronounce reed's name right okay from reed um from (laughs) from Nina, Wisconsin. Um, Reed, if you're listening, please like write to us. Let us know how to pronounce your name. I'm so sorry. So Reed says, Dear Kitty, don't worry about Alistair. I still love you. <laughs> I just like I'm always curious about the sort of love letters to characters that turn up in the letter pages for good or bad. In my imagination, as I've said many times before on the show, clearly Reed is a 15 year old boy who is in love with Kitty and doesn't get that she would hate him because she would consider herself too good. Uh, I was that boy. (laughs) Kitty sees you as a child because you are her own age. (laughs) Hi, I'm Donna Lauren to tell you about an exciting new contest, two big first prizes, two dazzling new Excalibur SS Roadsters. It's an $8,000 replica of the 1927 Mercedes-Benz SSK. 300 horsepower, automatic transmission, air horns, and other sporty accessories. Anyway, um, I think we'll we'll wrap things up there on that note. So before we completely run out of time, Mimi, is there anything you'd like to plug for our listeners? Um, where can people find you if you would like them to find you? Is there any work of yours that you'd like them to check out or that you would like to plug? Yeah, first and foremost, I just want to thank everyone for inviting me here today. It was a lot of fun, actually. It was a really great experience. Um, if you would like to connect with me, uh, you can find me at mimiokabi.com or on Twitter uh, at Mimorellas, which I don't really tweet much. Um, but again, thank you so much for such an insightful discussion. Thank you so much. We're so grateful. Mm. I'm so, so, so grateful to have your voice on this podcast. And we sort of came <laughs> up with the idea of like, we should get somebody who does manga. Andrew and I both thought of you immediately. And I was so thrilled that you said yes. So thank you so much. My pleasure. Next, in one week's time, we will be on to episode 20, in which we will be discussing Excalibur number 19, Madripoor Nights, in which Jamie pulls strings and Megan wears lots of skins in a less racially problematic way than the last time we will talk about it we've got art by rick leonardi and not one but two super fun guests who are eager to help us hash it all out in the meantime if you liked what you heard please follow us like and review the podcast wherever you're listening to it or watching it don't forget to check out our fabulous youtube videos which you can find via our website or the box popcast youtube channel as always if you want to 
chat with us about Excalibur or pitch yourself as a guest for a future episode, let us know. You can reach out via our website, goshgollywow.com, where we've got some fun extras, and via Twitter, at goshgollywow, where we post daily pages from whatever issue we're reading that week and more fun extras. Thank you, Andrew and Matt, for another high-octane conversation. Thank you, Mimi, for steering us in the right direction. Thank you all for listening, and a special thanks to Maximilian of Thoughtform Music for our truly epic theme song. Play us out. Made it. Stopping.